Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to the second series of Read Like a Writer, the books podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canon Gate, three independent publishers. In each episode, we'll hear from a different author and learn about the books that are closest to their hearts, their latest projects and their local indie bookshop. It's hosted by me, Anna Fielding, and recorded remotely in line with current restrictions. Hello, everyone. And if you were listening before in our previous series, then welcome back. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome in. Um, I'd also like to welcome today Tori Peters, who's our guest. Hey, Tori. Hey, thanks for Um, having me. Great to have you. Uh, Thanks for being our first author for series two. Um, Quicker to introduce you to everyone else, uh, Tori's debut novel, Detransitioned Baby, will be published by Serpent's Tale on January the 7th. Um, Tori has previously self-published three novellas, Infect Your Friends and Loved Ones, The Masker and Glamour Boutique, and she's a graduate of the prestigious um, Iowa MFA programme. She also, if you look for pictures of her online, has an extremely cool-looking motorcycle, which uh, I wish I could ask you more about, but that's not uh, the topic of the interview. It's not, it's not a, this isn't a motorcycle podcast? No, like, oh. but we could diversify. Detransition <laughs> <laughs> um, Baby has also been picked as one of this year's great books by uh, Oprah Magazine, Cosmopolitan Magazine and Vanity Fair, which is a pretty wide-ranging seal of approval. So here at Read Like a Potter Writer, we would also like to add our seal of approval. Um, hey, Tori. Hey. <laughs> um, firstly, for everyone who's listening who won't have read the book yet, could you give us all a brief outline of what Detransition Baby's about? Sure. It's, um, it is a, it's a literary fiction, and it follows the story of three people, um, probably... The, there's a single main character and she's sort of like a trans version of maybe Fleabag. She's kind of an urban woman and trying to figure it out in her thirties. And she, her ex is another trans woman who detransitioned gets her boss pregnant or gets his boss pregnant at that point. And then the three of them sort of try and figure out how to make an unconventional family together. And there's, you know, betrayal and, and hijinks and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's one hell of a plot, uh, <laughs> even aside from any kind of great writing. It's, um, 
But it also gives you like a really good framework, I think, to explore the relationships between the three of them, um, what parenthood means, and also people's gender identities as well. Um, and what was important to you when you began writing it? Where did the first idea come from? Um, it came from, I was writing a, um, I had been writing this series of novellas that I was self-publishing, and I was trying to do kind of one novella in a genre, kind of taking trans issues into these different genres. So there was a post-apocalyptic one, there was a horror one. And this one started out as my sort of soap opera novella. But of course, soap operas are very long, so the novella form didn't really hold it. And then what I was really kind of exploring was I wanted to go right at some of the hardest things about being a trans woman. And one of the biggest distinctions... I think um, about being trans is that, and and sort of my feeling of whether or not I, my relationship to womanhood is that I I really can't have children in the way that many cis women have children. And that feels like it's, you know, something that's present in the way that I understand my womanhood. So I wanted to just write about motherhood and write about what, what trans motherhood feels like. And, um, and, my relationship to cis women and the way that this term sort of is shared between us or not shared between us. Uh, by this term, you mean womanhood? Um, uh, I meant motherhood. 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 Yeah, sorry. Um, that, you know, because it's not something that is often talked about in terms of trans women. And mm. it's such a big part of how we understand womanhood. Which, yeah, is explored in several different ways through different characters in the book as well. Um I'm kind of sort of following slightly on from this. You know, you were self-publishing before, um, and I really loved that you did it in different genres. I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at things. Um, but you said a few years ago you felt that uh, trans women, trans voices in general, weren't served very well by mainstream publishing. Um, and when we spoke earlier, you said that was something that you, you'd sort of, sort of come around on. I wondered if you could... Uh, go into that for me sure the what i really meant when i that the trans audiences weren't served is that when you heard trans stories for a number of years you could tell that the stories were that the the imagined audience there was sort of a cis readership and that <clears throat> so much of the project was explaining trans life to cis readers so it was like 50 percent 60 percent 70 percent explanation and then 30 percent story Whereas if you imagined a trans readership, you could write a 100% story. You didn't need to explain what trans was. And this, for me, was also something I noticed in other marginalized literature. You know, Toni Morrison famously wrote for Black women. And by writing for Black women, she could just run at a full-out sprint. And it turns out everybody else could keep up. So that was something that was very exciting for me and a number of our friends was to write and imagine trans readers where the bar was higher for trans readers. You know, you can't just sort of wow them with a basic little trans, you know, here's hormones or something. You had to tell them that was something actually interesting for them. And I think that the publishing industry in around like 2014 was like, well, we still need it to explain to us. We still need it spoon fed. And so I self published these things with, you know, and my friends were doing similar things. We were trading stories. And in the subsequent years, the last, I know, especially I think from like about 2015 to 2017, there was a real explosion of transmedia 
out in the world. There was, you know, you could turn on the TV, you could see Pose. There were trans trans editors at a number of American publications, including like a Condé Nast publication. And it felt a little bit silly when there's editors at Condé Nast to say that the publishing industry, you know, when there's trans editors at, at Condé Nast to say that the publishing industry doesn't support trans people, it felt a little disingenuous. Um, certainly there's a lack of support in many places. But the question for me then was, okay, if we are getting support, what then I want to be part of defining this story and I want to be in these places. And what is important to me isn't saying, no, you guys can't tell the story, but being in on the ground floor and like how trans stories are being told in like a genuine, honest way in, in publishing. I think it's interesting what you say about being able to go a hundred percent at the story um, because you're right, people can keep up. And I think it's um, also, do you, I don't know if you agree with this, but for me, it's like a symptom of the conversation and the level of knowledge that people who aren't trans have maturing as well, is that you can enjoy a story and your story is one with incredibly universal themes. It's about heartbreak and exes and parenthood, um, which really are kind of what it is to be human as well. Right, um, right. So, so carry on talking about it there was one thing that yeah I've also I've gone through all your past interviews <laughs> um, uh, but you you know you talk about kind of reaching a different audience that audience being able to keep up and not just writing for a trans specific audience um you mentioned some concerns about airing dirty laundry yeah yeah I think that I think that this book does air dirty laundry and I've always sort of wanted to air dirty laundry because I wanted to name what's actually going on for us in an honest way. And that part of writing, you know, when you're imagining that a trans audience is as important as a cis audience is talking about what's really going on, you know, and naming it. And, um, and that if you trust a readership, then that readership is actually not going to totally judge you for it. Like there's, there's, I think there are people who would read parts of this book and be like, in fact, I know I've read reviews and they're like, why did you say that in front of the cis people? Like, that's not for, that's, that's between us. That's an inside conversation. And for me, I'm like, well, let's, I actually think that naming it and talking about it and, and putting that, those conversations that are happening for us in relationship to cis stories gives both cis people models for how to understand their gender. Cause lots of times I think trans thought can be quite useful for cis people. And the second thing is, I think there's models for how to live that cis people have that I'm interested in. I specifically dedicated this story to divorced cis women because when I looked at my life and I was like, you know, in my thirties and I'm trying to figure out how to, how to make it. And I think about who else starts over their life in their thirties and, you know, can't give into bitterness, can't invest in the illusions that they'd had before and don't have, you know, have to sort of tell a new story with limited resources for how to go forward. You know, the answer to that to me was, was divorced cis women. So I read a lot of stories by divorced cis women. And I realized like my, the challenges that I faced and the challenges that, that they were facing were very similar. And that this is a conversation that we should be having between each other. But in order to have that conversation, we actually have to be honest about what is really going on. And we can't be ashamed that there's you know, that sometimes, you know, believe it or not, trans people can behave badly. And, and, and that's, that's something that I want to talk about. 
I think it's that thing, isn't it, when you, again, of, like, allowing stories to have themselves. You don't want to present, like, a perfect character uh, no. who always behaves in the correct way. Also because, you know, you don't want these kind of perfect angel characters to be presented because they're not real and <clears throat> people can't empathise. And also, narratively, it's not very interesting. Like, a lot of the narrative drive, in some cases, can come from... Oh, God, it pained me to read sometimes, but some of Reese's relationship choices. Yeah. yeah, totally. And, you know, the thing is, like, unless you name those relationships as toxic and say, okay, we're looking for a thing, you know, there's a need for a kind of a validation that is actually toxic from men. And unless you talk about that and aren't afraid that people are going to be like, oh, you're just a stereotype. But, like, no, this happens. It's happened to me. It's happened to my friends. You know, we, you have to name it in order to be able to, like, get past it. And sometimes naming these ugly things looks like airing dirty laundry, but, you know, that's that's the process of, in order to heal from something, you have to know what's ailing you. Um, going back to what you just said before as well, uh, you know, you got me completely from the dedication because I'm that person in that position. Mm-hmm. So, um, and obviously the character of Katrina uh, is a woman of 39 who is divorced from a man um, and uh, she is the one who becomes pregnant by Ames. Um, <clears throat> what was the kind of, what role does Katrina play within the narrative for you? Well, I think Katrina, Katrina was the, Katrina was an interesting character for me to write because in a lot of ways, there already exists so much in literature, stories of pregnant women and stories of divorced women. And I was doing a, a kind of free and direct style, like a close third person. And so partly I didn't want to re, kind of reinvent that here. I think that the, that story is out there in the world. But I also didn't want to give Katrina short shrift. So I ended up the, being in the heads of the two trans women, because I think that's a place that a lot of readers are not they don't know as well but I really wanted to make Katrina a full character because she's kind of the link between it and also the fact that she was going through something really difficult that is the one thing you know that that I think for me as a trans woman I will never go through with my body I'll never be pregnant and you know really really thinking hard about how I wanted to depict that and how I wanted to include that experience in trans women's stories um, meant that she became she became the thing that the book really needed to to kind of create a a, a, a larger picture of what I was trying to show. Um, moving on to one of the other characters, the person we first meet is Ames, mm-hmm. um, who is uh, James to start with, then becomes Amy, and then becomes Ames. I will use their mm-hmm. names as a kind of shorter yeah. way of doing it. Um, so, you know, having lived as a woman detransitioned, um, having been a woman detransitions, is still a woman, he feels, occasionally. Um, yeah. Ames' sense of gender identity is a very mixed, I think. Uh, I think, And I think they're confused about it too, was the impression I got away from the book. Um, I think the experiences of that character are really interesting. I also wanted to talk to you because obviously... Detransition at the moment is very much in the British media, following on from the case of Kira Bell last October, uh, who detransitioned and then went to the High Court to uh, talk about the NHS prescribing puberty blockers. Um, 
for Ames, I think they don't detransition because they don't want to be a woman, though, do they? It's more about lived experience. Right. You know, and that was that most of the people that I know who have detransitioned, and it's pretty rare, but, you know, I've met some. Most of the people who detransitioned, they didn't detransition because they had regrets. So they're like, I got it wrong. They detransitioned because it was just too hard to live as a trans woman. You know, especially if they didn't pass, if they couldn't get jobs, if their family rejected them. And all of that pressure is, you know, all of these problems will just go away if you'll just be a man. You can just, you can have your job. Your your parents will welcome you back. You know, these kind of pressures and the ways that they just like really go deep inside of you to make it hard to know what your desires are, they're very, very present. Um, I tell a story about when I sort of found Ames's voice which I think is a voice that's not, he's very dissociated. You know, when he decided that he lived as a man, that he should live as a man again, it wasn't like he was like, oh, everything's fine. He just sort of distanced himself from his emotions in order to live as a man. And I sort of found that um, this thing happened to me where I was going with, I was going through a hard time in my life. Um, you know, similarly with people in my life not being as close to me once I transitioned. And I had a friend who, um, was getting a gender, a gender surgery in, in Mexico. And she was like, will you fly down with me and be my nurse? So I, I went, but I hadn't yet been able to get my passport changed. So my passport, you know, had an M on it. And I was, I was kind of nervous about flying through customs. And there's this part in the book where they talk about this, like sort of black suit that Ames has. It's sort of like a reservoir dogs looking suit. That was the one thing that that was the one item of clothing that I had kept after I transitioned. So when I flew down, I was like, well, I just, I'll fly through customs. I'll try and backwards pass, you know, and fly through customs. And so I kind of looked like this like sort of louche, androgynous, strange, like lost reservoir dogs character and um, flew through customs and was felt very dissociated as I was doing it. Like I was watching myself as a character. And then, of course, the airline. Uh, lost my luggage so the only thing I had was that black suit and I spent a bunch of time wandering around Guadalajara in this like black suit people and people just were like you know I didn't pass exactly as a man there's like something is up with that one but I wasn't really looking like a woman either and I was just kind of mumbling like like I was a doing a character and I was like this is kind of what I think Ames feels like all the time you know um, and I think that that's the case for many people I know who, who are living not quite in the gender that they want. They're just kind of watching themselves from without behaving. Um, so when I think about that experience for myself, I think I've gone through it. That's mine. I, I'm allowed to talk about that. I should talk about it. And I don't feel like having that experience weaponized against me by sort of anti-trans activists it doesn't belong to them it's not a looming possibility in their lives it is a looming possibility in my life and i don't appreciate it being 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 told that i shouldn't talk about it um when it's something that i have to deal with and this is sort of what i mean by airing dirty laundry it that belongs to me it belongs to my friends and if we can't talk about the fact that this could this exists and it only exists for us. It's only trans people who can detransition. You have to transition first. Then, you know, then we can't we can't actually talk about our lives. And if other people are going to be so nasty about it, 
that we can't actually speak about it, then we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. So I feel pretty comfortable talking about detransition. I feel comfortable talking about it on those terms. Um, the way it gets politicized, you know, especially with, in regards to people under the age of 18 and things like that, that feels to me like a separate issue. But the actual concept and can I actually talk about it um, and is it my story? I, I feel totally entitled to it. I think that probably gives everybody enough idea of the, the subjects and enough teasers for the book. I've also got to say as well, it is a very funny. We've talked about the serious <laughs> sides of things a lot. Um, Thank you. Uh, Reese is funny in and of herself, but uh, and I think most of she's she's the one with the wisecracks. But um, yeah. yeah, it certainly made me laugh a few times as well. <laughs> um, you. Know, uh, the book's largely set in New York, which is where you are now. Um, mm-hmm. We are, everybody at home, recording this via the miracle of pandemic recording uh, via computers. Uh, so I'm actually sat cross-legged on my bed. Uh, Tori, you're next to a bookshelf, I can see. I'm next to a bookshelf, with, <laughs> and I apologise, the heating just came on, so you get to hear the, the great sounds of century-old New York heating. Uh, so, uh, but... Outside my window, we have the pouring down northeast London rain. So uh, we're doing well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's good ambiance. It's atmospheric, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and your favourite independent bookshop, which we always ask our writers to talk about, um, is Café Con Libra, uh, which is also by you in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's so I'm in Greenpoint and it's a little bit south of me. But it's this new bookstore that opened up, Café Con Libros. It's, you know, coffee with books in Spanish. And um, it's a little cafe, but it's Black-owned. And they have been doing, they've got a great book club. Um, it's just like a, and it's like a place where uh, people in the neighborhood actually go and hang out. They've created a space that's really comfortable. Um, the selection of books is great. They've been doing working really hard during the pandemic to, to mail out books on time. I don't know if you remember that, um, you know, after the protests, the police violence here, there was a real rush to order books from black owned bookstores and they were, theirs was one of the ones that was just like inundated with orders and they were working, you know, I think 12, 15 hour days to get all of these books out, which is you know great for business, but they only have two employees and um and they've just been doing all this like during uh they had these really funny signs for the amazon prime day about like you should buy people who are interested in books instead of going to the moon you know they had all over the all over the neighborhood they had done that (laughs) and uh uh so they're great they're really great i love i love getting books from them what's the actual shop look like when you walk in it's 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 pretty small because it's, you know, it's a Brooklyn space. So, and they're just now expanding to the storefront next to them. But basically what you've got is you've got a little counter with where you can get your coffee. You've got um, some shelves of books and then they've got more books in back that you can get the selection because it's just hard to display all the books that they have. Um, I think that now that they're expanding, they're going to have more. But the other really nice thing is they've, the building is set back a little bit from the sidewalk, which is rare in Brooklyn and they've put tables and chairs and it's kind of like a little outdoor space. And so what it feels like when they do their book club and things like that, what it feels like is it feels like people are gathering all sorts of different people, all different backgrounds are just gathering in front 
to talk about how they love books, which is, you know, that's like, it feels like a very cool New York experience when you walk by it. It's giving me absolute pangs, actually, to, <laughs> to go and... Uh, it sounds completely lovely, and it's making me think of standing outside bookshops in the evening myself. Yeah. So we're going to go and see the books you've picked, which we're going to pretend uh, that in a non-pandemic situation you've bought from your favourite neighbourhood yeah. bookstore. Um, firstly, you know, the, the books you always recommend to people is actually a sequence of books uh, which have been hugely popular, um, which is Eleanor Ferrante's Neapolitan novels. But your recommendation is slightly different. You reckon people should read them out of order. I do. I, and this was something that I made the mistake of doing when I got them. I just was, I wasn't paying attention. And I read the second one first. I read uh, the second one, then the third one, then the first one, then the fourth one. And, and then I read it again in order and I liked it better the way that I read it out of order because of what it sort of simulates when you start with the second book, um, which is when she's a teenager and a young adult. And then the third book, which is like sort of her adulthood, it felt a lot like to me, like my own adulthood where it was sort of like I was figuring myself out and there was a lot of opaque details that I were sort of referenced, but that I couldn't quite understand what the references were. And this felt to me like being an adult where I was like, why am I the way that I am? Like, what are the like the sort of like things that are lingering that make me behave these ways, whether they're like coping mechanisms or like just like weird habits or like, you know, things that I thought the whole world did, but actually is just some like quirk of my family. So to like read two and then three and then return to book one and be like, oh, that's why I do that weird thing. You know, that's what that's what's been bothering me. It felt, <clears throat> excuse me. It felt so much like the way that I sort of rediscover my childhood as an adult and put it into a certain context. Whereas, you know, when I just read a book that's like, oh, here's just like a story of childhood, I'm oftentimes like, what is this? I don't know. It's, that's not really for me. But reading childhood in this adult context was, and the fact that the books are so incredibly rich, um, it just created an experience of what it felt like to be alive. See, I found it so interesting when I read your email and you said this because um, I just finished your book and I thought this makes complete sense because this is exactly how you've structured your novel. You know, you've, you've used uh, flashbacks in the characters' lives in order to kind of explain who they are in the present time. Um, does that, did you, do, you, do you see that link as well or am I overreaching? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason why it was so why I was so glad that I accidentally read it this way and like why it was I mean I was obsessed with this series I was like it's just like how I think you know and I think I know that there's so many people who read Ferrante and are like that book was written like straight to my heart somehow I mean I think she's there's something magic about her ability to do that but for me reading it out of order also did this because I was like not only is it speaking right to my heart it's also this feels like how I think where you know, in, in Detransition Baby, I have these characters and maybe they're acting badly. And, and you were like, why are they acting so badly? Why, you know, this, obviously that is the wrong choice. Don't do that. You know, don't go back to that man. And then you're like, well, why would you keep on going back to that man who obviously treats you badly? And then you can kind of return to earlier places in your life where something was missing and you had a need that wasn't, you know, and then suddenly it becomes understandable why you return why you might go back to that guy who you know treats you bad. You know, it's like, well, this is a need that I had that is so deep 
that when I get it fulfilled, even just for a few seconds before it turns badly, it's so rich that I'm willing to take that. In Ferrante, it really felt very similar to the ways that I wanted to, to have have these characters explain their impulses in Detransition Baby. Um, moving on to your next choice, you know, when you say you're shouting at people in a book, like, oh my God, don't do that. Mm-hmm. obviously a classic of the horror genre as well as horrible relationship genre um and i've got to say thank you for choosing a novel about a post-apocalyptic virus <laughs> in this point yeah. in history you're welcome <laughs> uh, uh, and you picked the passage by justin cronin um i mean who doesn't love a vampire but why do you love this one i think that just like you know, I read, I, I've written and I read a lot of literary fiction, but sometimes you come across something that's just like so taut and so just like exciting. And like when the satisfaction of having a character, you know, just like defeat the evil vampires, you know, and it's so satisfying and such a, it was, and to have a really well-written book, which Justin Cronin's The Passage is so well-written while being so tightly plotted that's just, it's just such a pleasure for me to get to read, to escape, you know, into a book. Um, and that, that one is one that I just, whenever I'm like, I'm, if someone says they want to escape, I'm like, read the passage. I think even even with the viral subject matter, um, yeah. I've been doing a lot of similar escaping at the moment. So I've definitely added that one to my list. I was also thrilled to learn that the vampires in this one have um, fluorescent orange skin, which is definitely a departure. So Right. The, instead of shining diamond skin, it's fluorescent orange. So it's t- totally different than any vampire you've ever seen before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, yeah, we talked a bit about uh, almost the unconscious influence that the Neapolitan novels have had on your book, but the one that you said was a definite influence on your book was The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. Um, and one of the things I found really interesting when you wrote to me was that you said that you were arguing with her book in your head before starting yours, and I wondered what the arguments were. Well, I wrote, that book for me was a book that I read twice. I read once before I started the book, before I started Detransition Baby, and I read once afterwards, and it was like a completely different book to me each time. The first time I read it as a book that really was using trans theory and trans thought to talk about motherhood, but was sort of erasing trans women from that story. It was like it borrowed ideas from trans theory and it explained what, you know, thoughts about bodies using trans ideas, but no trans women weren't mentioned at all. And so I wrote this book being like, well, I, I, you're using trans thought to talk about motherhood while trans women aren't in it at all. I want to have a story of trans womanhood that's missing in this book that I saw so many women reading on, on, on like the train or in cafes and things. It's like, if you're going to use our ideas, why, why aren't we in it? That's how I felt early on. And so I was arguing with this book and I was like, wanted to put trans characters in conversation with the kind of ideas that Maggie Nelson was having. And so I wrote the whole book and then when I was done, I reread Maggie Nelson's Argonauts, and I, it was a completely different experience. It was almost like I'd argued through the writing of the book into seeing her position on things. And her view of womanhood, you know, I think when I started the book, I needed her to point to trans women and say, you too, you're included. And when I finished the book and I'd worked it through, I reread it, and I felt like, Actually, we were always already there, and we were so already there that we didn't need to be invited in. You know, it, it's like when you're already in the club, no one needs to tell you that you can come in. You just are already part of it. And so I think that, you know, it's the, for me, the difference between reading in 2015 and 2020 was the difference between sort of a, a paranoid reading and a reparative reading, where the first time I was paranoid that I was being excluded, and the second time, I assumed a generosity on her part and I was included. And, um, but that tension between those two uh, helped me generate an entire book in, in the middle. What was it that changed your mind during the writing of the book? Um, you know, I, I, I began to basically see the kind of 
There was a long time where I thought that the struggles and the unhappiness that I was feeling was very unique to my experience as a trans woman. That's the place that I started writing this from. And slowly I began to see that actually, as I talked to more, more women of, you know, all walks, that no, these, these things, I have a particular vantage on it being trans, but these troubles or these difficulties or these kind of emotional places where I could find them in the experiences of all sorts of women. The way that I was talking about dissociation for Ames, you know, that to me feels particularly trans. But when I started talking to women about bad sex that they'd had, awkward sex that they'd had, and the ways that they dissociate, you know, you have stories like the cat person story that was so popular on The New Yorker. The description of dissociation in that story is so close to the description of dissociation for trans women. And at some point, I, I had talked about it so much that it, I almost couldn't put the little like cis or trans marker beforehand. It was just dissociation. It was just dissociation as women, just the way that like bad feelings circulate. And the way I thought about it in my head became inclusive. It became, this is how I think about these things. I think about it for women and I'm including myself in women when I even think. So um, then when I read, reread Maggie Nelson's Argonauts, I was bringing that sort of inclusive attitude that was already in my thoughts to the book and I found it mirrored. Like the book is kind of interesting because it, it's going to mirror, it does a good job of mirroring whatever your own prejudices and ideas are when you when you come to it. And when I came to it from a more generous place, it mirrored that back at me. Your classic pick um, is actually a book I hadn't heard of, which made me feel terrible because it won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1955. So I'm keen for you to tell me about it. And it's Independent People by the Icelandic writer Halvor Laknes. Um, you said it contained a lot of sheep, but I'm sure that's not all it contains. <laughs> I mean, there really are a lot of sheep in it, and somehow he makes sheep much more thrilling than you think. I mean, it's a story of a Icelandic sheep farmer, and he was <clears throat> um, he was like a tenant farmer for a rich bailiff in Iceland around the turn of the century um, for a number of years, and he finally got his own tiny little homestead. And um, that really does not do it justice. That sounds boring. It sounds terrible about a bunch of people, like people living in squalor and with their animals. But it's actually, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it was written in 1952, I think, and it has a lot of elements of magical realism that you find in like Garcia Marquez and in, in later books. It has that same sense of humor, sort of scatological sense of humor that's sort of just like richness and like thickness of life where everything is jokes, everything's a yarn. The difference between, they're living kind of in... Um, they're totally cut off from the rest of the world. So you realize as you're, as, you're, as you're reading it that actually the events of the world are seeping in on the edges of the story, like World War I happens and the price of wool goes up because of the war. But they almost don't know that the war is happening because they're so remote. And so it sort of seeps in through sort of a, a veil of folklore and local stories and there's kind of this um, sort of Scandinavian... Um, Scandinavian folklore is actually how they're understanding the entire world. So World War I comes to them as Scandinavian folklore, and they treat it as such, where there's sort of witches in the woods who are cursing their sheep. 
And so you've got this like funny, <clears throat> magical kind of story, but it's magical realist. So you're not like, oh, there's actual magic. And then in the middle of it, you have this incredibly modern story of the sheep farmer and his daughter. And, he, and it's kind of actually a feminist story where he doesn't treat his daughter particularly well, or he just sort of assumes that she'll be in a certain way. And when she doesn't act as he thinks she should act, basically making him, revering him as the patriarch and, um, you know, acting proper and quiet all the time, um, he, he, he disowns her. He, he, he sends her away. And then you have this period where he's living alone on his farm with his sheep for many years, and you realize how lonely he is without her, without his daughter, um, even as you have all these yarns happening. And um, in the end, in the end, it's this, it's this very modern story with a message about men and women and, and our roles, um, but in a package that I've, I've never encountered anything like it. Um, before or since um, and I, I just I go back to it and I'll read the first 15 pages and just be completely delighted in a way that you know I don't think of from sort of something that has as, as sort of a stuffy sound as like a classic or Nobel or something it, it, I just I start giggling when I read it there's always one book I think particularly out of everyone's recommendations when we do these shows that uh, really gets to me because you can see someone really light up when they talk about <laughs> it and I think we've just hit that one for you yes. it's, uh, definitely getting added to my to read pile off the back of that um, and we're also starting to spot some themes actually that kind of tally with your own writing you know you always talk about richness and uh, intertwining stories um, do you think that's that would be something that comes up a lot for you yeah I, I mean I don't know how funny I've been in this podcast, but I really like humor in, in, you know, I like humor and I like a good plot and I like sort of like the, I don't, the, I think Nabokov used this word that was like, sort of like the wetness of life. I think I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try and say it in Russian, um, the word, <laughs> but, um, it's just like, you know, where just everything about how you live, the sadness, the, the happiness, the humor, bodies, intellectualism like all of it are just like crammed in and it's so so thick with it that it's almost like dripping that that kind of literature is so exciting to me you know and, and I think books like 100 years of solitude or independent people are these books that are just like wow this is just so packed with life um and Ferrante too so packed with life these that's those are just just such a pleasure to me um Going into something you've recently read as well, uh, which again, I'm really interested to follow up what you initially said to me when you chose it, but um, you've recently read The Years by Annie Erno, um, and you said that you don't see much of her style of, her style of writing in American writing, and um, obviously it's in translation from the French, it was published in France in 2008, and in Britain and in America in 2018. Um, I wondered what you meant by you. Why do you, what do you mean by you don't see much of her style in American writing? You know, it's, it's almost like autofiction, this book, but it's, it's also, it's a very difficult book to describe. It's basically a history of France in the post-war 
But what you really are getting is a history of her perspective on France. So it's, it's this, what seems like a distant third person, sort of like this happened, culturally this happened, but the details are so specific. It's like what kind of cigarette a person is smoking, what kind of uh, food they're eating or what, what, the, what the quips at the local cafe are, you know, that are preoccupying people are actually so specific to her life that she's actually telling a story of France, all of France, and telling a story of her own personal life. And there's a kind of wild ambition in this book, you know, to tell the entire story of post-war France. And, but that I think if an American were to do it, they'd end up with something like, um, you know, Jonathan Franzen, like a big social novel. And, and the, the idea that the way that she did it was to just pare it down and not kind of do like the, you know, emphasis on craft that I think we see in American writing. Um, she just, she just was like, this is my voice. This is my perspective. And I totally believe in it. Um, and there's kind of like a French cynicism to it. That's like, uh, just completely charming. But I read it and I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I don't, I can't think of any American who would have both the like combination of the, of the ambition to do this, with the modesty of the approach and to create this this short novel that does so much and is is just so innovative um i just i read it and i was sort of like why why couldn't i th- why can't i think this way like how, how did where you know is it because she's so french is it because she's like uh, it's because she's she's older and she's just seen so much. Like, how did she have the perspective to do this? Um, and why aren't the people around me thinking in these kind of terms? It's interesting that you say that and um, also point out her nationality as well. Because I think people, uh, you know, you hear several writers say they almost get stuck in the literary tradition of the country they're born in, you know, there's Irish writers who feel that they'll never be able to live up to the great Irish literary tradition. Um, there's the idea of the great American novel, which must hang over yeah. your head as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you ever want to crack at something that would be described as a great American novel? Um, I mean, I think it's inevitable just because that's, it's such a, it's such a tradition. And I think you know, I've been to an MFA program, and there's a certain way that um, you 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 get these voices in your head of this. You know, you know what kind of sentence is going to be praised. You know what kind of structure people are going to look for. And for me, a lot of process of coming to myself as a writer was actually unlearning a lot of the the ways that I think I was supposed to write as an American. And I think my book is still very American, but. Um, you know, the, the fact that there was the, like all of these books from, from other traditions that, that like, you know, independent people or South, South American literature, um, the whole kind of auto fiction thing that, you know, now that, now that is what all the Americans are doing. But, um, those, that to me was sort of like, well, actually the great American novel is maybe, is maybe a relic of 
of like the 1940s through like the 1970s of a certain idea that you could do, that you could be American. But of course, it's a certain voice that's always American. You know, it's a it's a kind of uh, a very male voice describing a story in a where it feels quite entitled to tell a sort of kaleidoscopic um, kaleidoscopic vision of, of different voices, which is why Erno is so interesting because she didn't try and do any voice but her own. And yet she did, she covered easily as much ground as, as, you know, I, I love Philip Roth, but she covered just as much ground as like someone like Philip Roth. Um. And talking of someone, uh, again, we're going into autobiography again, uh, someone who's blending ideas with autobiography. Um, the book you always go back to is The Possessed by Elif Batuman, um, which, you know, well, I'm going to let you talk about it instead. I think also, again, I'm really interested by how varied your picks are, but how they all do sort of share this certain kind of richness. Yeah, she is such, she's so good on the sentence level. She's so funny. And um, I also think she, that book is a great book for readers because so often, um, you know, when you talk about, when people talk about their lives, they're supposed to be like, well, it's the richness of my experience that informed how I write. Whereas she was a, she was a, you know, a grad student in literature and she was so in, immersed in literature that she understood the things that happened to her through um, the kind of, books that she had read. So it's called The Possessed. And each essay is sort of about a Russian writer. And what she's actually doing is she's understanding her own situation, her often ridiculous, absurd, you know, we think of Russian literature as quite like, you know, here's the great questions of life or something. But oftentimes it'd be like, uh, I have an awkward conversation with someone who I'm supposed to pick up from the from the airport, you know, that kind of level of everyday detail. And she's like, the only way I can understand this conversation I'm having in the car is through a checkoff, you know, which is actually a quite ridiculous thing to say. Like, I, I understand why this is awkward because I read checkoff and it's so funny. And it actually, again, is something very similar to, I think, how, how a lot of us who really love books understand, understand that it's like, why is this happening and the what we think of is, is the stories that have informed how we see the world. So in terms of both a worldview, I think she's captured like an amazing worldview of a reader. And then just as a like as a humorous approach to life that's actually quite deep. She's done it's just such a good book. I, I'm so envious of it. How do you feel having that kind of writerly envy? It's good. I think that um, this is such a weird reference all of a sudden, but I watched the Michael Jordan documentary. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. The Netflix Netflix documentary about Michael Jordan. And you realize that oftentimes the reason he was so great is because he was incredibly petty. Like he wasn't like (laughs) we think of him as like, we think of him as like this like great like sportsman or whatever. And you watch that documentary and it's like, it's like, he, I remember there was one team that he beat, like he just like dug deep and, and you think like, oh, he's a great sportsman. He dug deep and found something inside of himself. But really what it was, was that the, the, the opposite team's coach had snubbed him at a restaurant, like had not come to his table to say hello. And so he was like, that guy thinks he's better than me. I'm going to destroy his team. And 
And that, like, apparently while he was, like, you know, while they were down any number of points, what he was actually thinking about was, like, I'm not going to let that guy snub me again. And so there's a I'm, – I'm not even that into sports, but I watched this just because people told me it was a great story, and I recognized in it a kind of petty competitiveness that actually is <laughs> um, so motivating to basically be, like – like, I'm going to do, I, they think that they can write a sentence. I'm going to write a sentence, you know, this sort of like, um, and that, so I love it. I love, I love getting to, to be in competition with other writers and the way that it, it motivates me and makes me not sort of just like rest, um, contented with what I'm, what I've been able to produce. And I'm, I'm always looking for new secret, uh, I don't want to say like nemesis, but like new secret, um, uh, secret people that I, who I love. I, you know, or not, I would never, I would never snub. Alif Batman was so nice, to, nice enough to blurb my book. Um, but at the same time, I'm also like, I want to be able to do what you do, you know? <laughs> so I get that. I understand. <laughs> but I also love the honesty. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and finally, your non-fiction recommendation uh, is Norwegian Wood, which uh, is not the Beatles song and is not on a books podcast, less surprisingly, the Murakami book. Uh, <laughs> it is actually the one that's about stacking and chopping wood by uh, right. Lars Mithing. Right. I j so this, over COVID, we got, um, my girlfriend and I got a little, we found this like abandoned log cabin it was a, like just a shack for hunters in the woods of vermont and so to sort of like escape covid we restored it over the summer and by restored it doesn't mean that we like had a lot of skills like it's very easy to restore a, a log cabin it's like you scrub it and you just keep the rain out you know it's not it's no one's doing drywall or anything but it's got a wood stove for heat and um we couldn't get the wood stove working and like I kept on smoldering, it wasn't keeping us warm. So someone recommended this book about chopping and stacking wood, which again, like the sheep of independent people, sounds incredibly boring. It is the most delightful book. It is actually a guide to stacking wood, which is like sounds like watching paint dry. But it's this guy, he has so much wisdom, and he sort of like talks about the act of stacking wood as a generational exercise, right? When you cut down, when you fell a tree and then you coppice a little tree in its place, it's 40 years before it's ready to harvest again. And, he, and so what the book's actually teaching you is sort of like, and it's your children who will probably harvest that tree. So it's like kind of teaching you this like worldview of like providing for yourself, making, making, being warm through the winter and leaving a beautiful world for, or at least a sustainable world for your children, but doing it all through this just very basic activity of chopping wood. And so then I started chopping wood um, and he was right. It's like the most meditative activity that is also somehow not repetitive. Like it's not boring to chop wood, even though it seems like it should be. And that's chopping wood is like not, it's not something that people are like, Tori is a, a likely wood chopper. Like that wasn't, that's not like my, my presentation in the world. Um, but I was just so delighted and it taught me a way of seeing and a way of like sort of slowing down, especially in a time like quarantine to sort of just like watch time pass. Think about this wood is going to be, you know, you cut down a tree, then the wood's dry. 
next year. And so I think about when I cut this tree, I was like, next year, my book's going to be out. I'm not going to worry about that. You know, COVID hopefully will have passed. And at that time, I'm going to have a fire that keeps me warm. And and that vision that that guy is able to, to share um, is incredible. It was a bestseller in Scandinavia, like this, this wood chop. You know, you think about like Scandinavian, like noir and, and detective stories. And it's like, along with them is this wood chopping book. It's pretty amazing. Um, so I am not either someone who presents as someone who's chopped wood, but yet I too have done it and find it quite meditative as well. I was thinking just before you said it, I was like, I've got to talk about how meditative it is. And then you got there before me. But um, I've also read it and I agree with you completely. Um, it was actually quite big here as well. And I bought it as a gift for someone and read it before I gave it to them really carefully without cracking the spine. Um I've done that. <laughs> but your cabin sounds idyllic. Um, are you able it, to go up there in the winter at all? It's not insulated. So, I mean, partly this, the wood shopping was about was about trying to be able to make it through the winter there because you really have to, you've got to feed the stove every 40 minutes to keep it warm enough. It's in Vermont, so it'll be, we're thinking about going up this weekend and it's going to be, um, it's going to be nine degrees um, Fahrenheit in the in the nights with and the the wind does go right through those logs so you really gotta you gotta keep that fire going you know <laughs> so but it's 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 really saved my mental health in in the over the last year um and on a happier note what's the thing you're most looking at as we sort of round up and stop talking about other people's books and go back to yours what's the thing that you're most looking forward to seeing about uh, detransition baby coming in I think I'm I'm looking I'm looking forward to the conversations that people have about it you know I'm looking forward to eavesdropping on those conversations and um, I think that and I'm looking forward to the books that are going to be in conversation with it that have not yet been written or that are still coming out um, it's the it's there's a lot of tendency to talk about trans first, like the first trans person to do this, first trans, and I'm not exactly sure the degree to which you can call this book a trans first. There have been trans women who have published books on the big five presses in the United States, um, especially memoir. There's a lot of memoirs, um, but this is, by most people's account, the first trans story written by a trans woman about trans women published on a big five press. And it, and I, I hope it's not arrogant to say that I think it's one of the most uncompromising. So I'm excited to see what kind of books, what kind of path um, that breaks. And then the other people who follow that path and take it further than I, than I've taken it. You know, I, I think it's, um, I'm I'm really I just talked about how I thrive in a certain kind of competition. You know, I'm excited for the people who come right after this and just take my ideas farther than I could ever thought. I'm like, why didn't I think of that? And then I have to go write more to 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 keep up with them, and that's going to happen sooner than I sooner than probably sooner than I want. Like you know, there's some, there's going to be the next great. Uh, I don't want to say that mine is necessarily great, but there's going to be a great. Uh, I think it's great, but there's going to be a great trans book 
that's going to come out right after mine. And it's, I'm hoping that it's all, I'm hoping that it's a whole literary moment, you know. Um, I think we can say that you've probably put a sapling in the ground for the next literary generation then. <laughs> I, uh, returning to the wood, I, I hope so. I hope, <laughs> I hope that in 40 years um, someone's chopping down this tree. Well, let's hope it doesn't take quite 40 years. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. And um, Detransition Baby is published on January the 7th by Serpent's Tale. Uh, Tori, thank you and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate Books and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. To get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash Read Like a Writer. And we'd love to hear what you think too, so you can tweet us at Read Like a Pod.